0: aan de norre Hier is Soa. Die kan afwerken. Het is binnen. Kijk eens aan. Wat kan hij dat? Goed, Kamal Soa. In die tijd met zijn linker Heerlijk afgedrukt. Kraniec. En it's diverted in by Broting.
1: Mooie bal weer, is Stadić en het doelpunt
0: schitterend van Mohamed Kudus.
1: Hello Ramblers, Andy here and welcome to the latest Ramble Meets and dare I say a very special Ramble Meets um, with me in conversation with FC Nordseeland Chairman Tom Vernon. Yes, that's right, English guy in charge of a Danish Super League club but that's not even the most interesting bit of it. Tom has got such a fascinating story uh, starting out with his roots in coaching, um, going into founding and running uh, the Right to Dream Academy in uh, Ghana. how he developed the concept from there and how the academy that's right the academy bought the football club that's how he ended up in charge of Nordiana not the other way around Um, so it's a really unusual tale and quite inspiring as well i have to say because uh tom's n- not just about developing football players he's about um developing people and he's, he's got a real strong sense of um helping young people to fulfill their potential on every level uh, which i just found absolutely fantastic um i hope you do too happy listening this is ramble meets tom vernon
0: I was a coach originally. I I, um, I went out to Ghana um, when I was 19 to coach. I um, I did my coaching badges very young and um, and and felt that frustration, which especially in the you know um, in the 90s was there that the, the jobs in academies and so on was the preserve of, of retired professional footballers. So tough getting into the into the game, and so had this idea through a connection to go and. and and start trying to coach in Africa, and um, so that was my original starting point. And then, and then, um, as sort of right to dream developed, and and coaching uh, became too time intensive. Then I took the scouting job, which was sort of I think two or three years after I'd, after I'd moved to Ghana.
1: Um, so how it seems that Ghana had a huge effect on you, not just um, the football, but the way of life the people, how quickly did you feel that bond with the country that you so clearly feel and has, has led you to creating this
0: project, I suppose? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, Ghana's famous for its sort of warm welcome and um, it's interesting the other day I was, I was speaking with um, with Pippa Grange, who's our head of culture here, and we were looking at um, – uh Denmark had just been announced again as the, the best place to live in the world and the happiest place to live in the world, which it <laughs> seems to kind of get every year. And we were talking about where do things like um feeling welcome within 30 seconds of arriving sort of rate on what a good place <laughs> to live is because Denmark would actually score quite poorly on that one. But you know, one of the one of the one of the great things about Ghana is that, you know, as soon as you arrive and, and everywhere you go, there's an there's an unbelievable warm welcome and just a just sort of a lighthearted fun spirit and and um and warmth so uh you know straight away when you arrive and I, i think um you know the rest of west africa can be a little bit a little bit more tricky in some ways but it's kind of a universal feeling that you get across across west africa um there's that real warmth and then um and then it's sort of a very gradual process of 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 learning and understanding the culture which is 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 deep and rich but has also been um you know sort of significantly interfered with um mm. by by um by britain over a long period of time and so a lot of complexities of being a being a um a, a white man there and 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 trying to figure out you know how things work and and understandable kind of um caution around trusting you and your motives and, and all those kind of things so digging like deeper and deeper underneath the skin to find like the real richness of the culture. Um, and, and the values, you know, that took me, I think 10 years to, you know, to really sort of see what Ghana was all about. So you get this, you get this, um, first, first impression is so warm. And then to, you know, to peel beneath the layers, to really understand what it's all about takes a a, a really long time. But, um, but you're right. Yeah. That I've, that, all the way through that, sort of develops a deeper and deeper love for the for the country.
1: So uh, clearly, there's there's a, a connection pretty quickly. Um, even if it took you time to fully familiarise yourself with the culture of Ghana and to really get to get to know it intimately, the gap between you going there for the first time and Right to Dream being founded in 1999 that that's pretty small. So how does that come about?
0: So um, we, uh, I, I, I was coaching a, a a local team called Olympics, which at the time was probably the third biggest club in uh, in Ghana, and I, I, I was doing that, you know, as soon as I arrived, and the the whole thing, you know, we, we would have like three thousand people at training and twenty thousand at our games, but the, the you know the infrastructure was so poor and um, the support for the players was so poor, and so as a result, you had, you know. In those days, in 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 the Ghana Premier League, not that many players were getting moves to Europe, and if they mm. were, it was very difficult. So the the kind of the the raw the raw like tactical and technical qualities of the players was really high, but you could just see that it hadn't been you know polished and developed in the way that the academy systems in in the developing world are doing. Um, and so the thought fairly early on was like, wow, imagine if. Imagine if players of this quality had had a really decent education in football and had the right facilities from a young age. So that was kind of my, um, you know, my initial idea. And so we literally held a trial in our area and I lived on the outskirts of um, uh, a, a, a community called Nima in Ghana, which is the most sort of famous um, sort of community in Ghana in, in a other other countries would refer to it as like a shanty town or some or something like that but um uh so we held a trial there and because I was coaching a a, a big club sort of my name was my name was known we had a hundred kids who turned up, and the idea was just to run it as like an after school football club mm. and you know within a few months of coaching you know we picked sixteen kids and within a few months of coaching those kids, you start to get connected to the realities of trying to, um, survive and make it as a kid in, in, in Accra. And so, you know, many of the kids either didn't have access to a quality school and a lot of them didn't have access to stable nutrition and, you know, and then you'd have some varying degrees of abusive homes scattered into that as well. And so fairly early on, you know, for me and, and my girlfriend who, who, um, who's now my wife um, got just really connected to the kids and and really loved it. And it was like, let's try and let's try and do something more significant here because the two hours of two hours of coaching and then, and then you've got kids walking home 10 K after training, and they're not going to have a meal when they get home. In some cases, Um, it was like, we could, you know, we want to do more than that. So we turned our living room into a classroom and we turned our spare bedrooms into um, dormitories and we moved, uh, and we moved these sixteen lads into our house, and um, and that was kind of the that was kind of the start. And you know, embarrassingly, it was called Tom Vernon Football Academy in the early days. But um, you know, we fairly realised that wasn't a brand that had significant traction, and so sort of rebranded to Right to Dream. Um, but yeah, that's how we started. And, and you know, from those sixteen kids who were just from one community, uh, three of them ended up playing for Ghana, and. Wow. Uh, Five became pros in Europe, and six graduated from Division One universities in America. So it was kind of you know the case in point of a, you know a 19 year old from England who doesn't know much about anything goes and applies a little bit of common sense and hard work to a situation, and and you know and the results are just amazing. I don't think there's anywhere else you could hold a trial for a hundred kids and pick 16 and then have those kind of outcomes. And so, you know, that was sort of, and obviously that took 10 years to manifest itself, but you could see sort of early on that, wow, there's so much, so much potential um, in in football and, and some great students, but most importantly, which is like the anchor of, of Right to Dream is in character and just seeing these kids, just tremendous kids grow, who, who were brought up on uh, tremendous values and, and cultural principles in Ghana that meant we felt like they were really well equipped. And I, I never really took the opportunities that the UK offered me too seriously and felt pretty embarrassed about it as well. When you saw, you know, the, the opportunities, you know, the, the, the meager opportunities that I was offering and how, how much our lads wanted to develop and grow and absorb knowledge and, and, and build a better life for themselves. Um, so that was very humbling as well.
1: I mean, it's fascinating because when you read about Right to Dream, and I've heard you talk about it elsewhere, it's clear that the pastoral element of it is, is so important to you. But from the way you tell it, it's inevitable. It's, it's not really a choice, but something that just evolved pretty quickly once you got into coaching them football.
0: Yeah. It, and, you know, I've said this before, you know, one of the, one of the, um, i think the the blessings which is mostly um exploited is that there's there's so little regulation about how you can run an academy in africa that you know you're not restricted by folders and folders of regulations that you know a, a lot of the guys i know who run the academies in england are kind of frustrated by mm. and so if you do if you if you are approaching it from the right point of view and you want to do the best thing for the kids and not not run it as a you know as a money-making exercise first and foremost then um then you can build some really cool um ideas into how we're going to develop you know the whole the whole person here and how we're going to take a holistic approach towards um developing these kids and 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 what became apparent really early on which you know was more from the kids than from me was like say, Tom, we're not even the best kids in our neighborhoods. And then, you know, then the, then the philosophy evolved that, well, okay, I'll put everything I've got into you guys, but only on, you know, the deal here is that you then put everything that you've got into the, into the lads that you're leaving behind. Hmm. And so we try to create this ripple effect. And and one of the things that that creates is purpose within the academy. There's a reason for being there, which is more than what are you going to get out of it individually you're there to get something individually and achieve your dreams, but you're doing that because you know, that you're just lucky to have got in, 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 in the Ghana context. And that while the lads that you leave behind are obviously going to be the same age as you and, 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 you know, go on and get a job. You're still going to be the next generation of young kids with tremendous potential and talent and, and that it needs unlocking. And, and, you know, right stream can only do a, a little bit of that. So we're super proud now with, you know, many of our graduates doing really, really cool things in the communities that they come from in the knowledge that they, you know, first and foremost, were, were lucky to get in because the opportunities just aren't, aren't generally provided. So that was kind of, you know, the origin of where sort of some purpose came into the academy of saying, right, this isn't about you. It's about the it's about the 100, 100 kids you've left behind in your neighborhood.
1: And as you say, of course, the academy doesn't exist in a bubble, particularly as it gets bigger, particularly as you create that relationship with Europe, with Ghanaian players coming over to Europe. I mean, when we look back in in the past and look at African players coming over to Europe, we sometimes think of unscrupulous agents and even people trafficking. So how did you as an academy get past that, create the relationship of trust with the players and their families and a relationship of trust with European clubs who you were dealing with.
0: In the early days, it was because all 16 lads were, were, were living with us and, you know, families would come around and visit. It was, you know, really kind of a family affair in the early days. And, you know, that first generation of boys that moved in, they're all like 31, 32 now. Most of them have got, most of them have got kids and, And so in the early days there, it was, it was, um, and we also didn't have any idea what the pathways were going to be. We didn't have relationships with clubs in Europe or with schools in America. So Mm. we were basically all kind of hustling together to just try and find a, a better future and some pathways. So that kind of created a huge amount of, of trust because the lads could see, like I was sticking all my salary into, you know, feeding everybody and, and paying some teachers to come in. So the trust there was was good you know the, the the question about unscrupulous agents is um is not one that is uh, in any way exclusive to to africa mm. um but the the um the sort of persistent um attempts to sort of prize kids away and and take them on routes to to quick money is just a reality that we you know that we have systems to manage because it's a it's a monthly occurrence uh for for us in Ghana um and also up here in, in in Denmark to a certain extent so that's that's kind of a reality that you just uh, that you just have to deal with and then you know finding um finding clubs was you know in the early days it was just it was like pure hustle of literally like turning up at you know the first place we ever uh took kids was Everton and the reason that that happened was because Alex Nyarko do you remember him he used to play for yeah. Everton was a Ghanaian and um he was home, he was visiting and he was with the player care guy, a guy called Bill Ellaby, I think. And um, and and literally, like, I met someone in the pub who was like, there's a guy from Everton here. And so we invited him to come and see the lads. And he said, oh, let's try and bring a couple up to Everton. And that was the very first one. And then we networked into a couple of others, Fulham. Um, and then when I took the job at Man United, then... I said, you know, I'll do the scouting, but I want to be able to bring a couple of my lads in every year from right to dream, um, you know, for a development experience. And maybe one of them is going to work out to be good enough as well. So that was kind of the first um, sort of structured thing that we created. And that was the big objective in the academy was to be one of the two lads that got to go and train at United for uh, for four weeks in the, in, in the summer. So we just kind of organically built those relationships and the whole thing, you know, I used the word hustle a couple of times already. The whole thing was just a big, a big hustle and <laughs> and and just trying to, trying to lift it.
1: So after that incredible first class, that incredibly successful first class of 16 that you've got, I mean, did you ever imagine that it could get to this point that that you are now where you're looking at, Really, I mean, how how many scholars do you have at, at Right to Dream in Ghana at the moment? Is it 80, 90, something like that?
0: Yeah, we normally have about a hundred in residence, and we right. have girls, girls as well. Um, and and then obviously with Egypt opening up um, in in January, then we'll have thirty, uh, you know, thirty of the first intake moving in there. And I'm looking out over the the, the pitch here at um, at, uh, at FCN at the moment. That I can show you where we've got you know a whole academy. Operating here as well, so wow. you know, we've got we've got like. Um, Sorry, I should have sat the other way around. You'd have had a better view than looking <laughs> at me. But uh, but um, we we um, uh, yeah, I mean we've got uh, three you know three hundred and fifty ish kids in 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 the system, and we're applying the right to dream methodology to all of them. So it's I think certainly in terms of Ghana, it's so obvious like that. There's just so much. underdeveloped potential not just in football you know across across the whole of um youth society in west africa um that in some ways like i imagine that that's what it should be whether i thought that we could kind of pull it off I, i can't really remember what we were thinking and me and me and my wife often ask ourselves what the hell we were thinking when we moved all these kids into the house but um it always was seemed like the most logical thing in the world to me that structures needed needed to be put in place um but yeah there's been a few moments you know like when we when we bought the club here and and that was you know that was our little youth team from Ghana evolving to the point where it could buy its own club in Europe yeah and then and then the other day when i saw the announcement on the bbc of our partnership with the Mansours and then you look at stuff like that and very occasionally you go, you know, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but you, you, can swear. you know, so you know, it's like fucking hell, like getting to this level is like you, you couldn't have imagined that. And if you'd seen the um if you'd seen the uh those headlines and said that's where it's gonna get to, you you wouldn't obviously never have believed it when you were just coaching sixteen kids in your house and cooking cooking them rice in the evenings.
1: What I think is the most amazing thing um, about the Academy from my reading up on it is the fact that it's not simply we are going to Ghana, creating an infrastructure, and you will do it our way. It's all about cultural exchange. That's what's interesting to me. And you've talked before about not just bringing European ideas to Africa, but bringing African ideas to Europe, which with North and you've got another outlet for now. How important is that to you?
0: Well, I, I certainly didn't go thinking that. And, you know, I think that we're in a really interesting um, time in the world now where kind of realization and understanding of um, of our past and the need for, you know, um, white, white English people and, and in a lot of cases white Americans to kind of relearn relearn history and understand what the tr- the truth was and mm. you know what I find a bit or really embarrassing about my youth when I reflect on it is kind of this sort of uh, trained ingrained superiority and um, you know almost sort of neo-colonialism that I when I analyze sort of the curriculums and the books that I read and the movies that I watched and everything else mm. and so you know I did certainly arrive in Ghana thinking that you know for some reason, you, you know, as, as, as white Englishmen that we know better. And, and, and that was kind of my, I think my early kind of thinking was that I did know better and, and it reflected sort of deeply on that and, and, and learn over a period of time that you, that you don't. And, and I think now when we look at how fractured American and British society is in many ways with Brexit and guys like Trump getting in, mm. we're also learning that, you know, the values and the principles that we've constructed our society on aren't actually uh, superior in any way and so then i started developing this real kind of thirst for like okay well what are the answers that ghana has to offer and if we can if we can kind of rem- sort of try and eliminate from our th- from our analysis all the stuff which basically britain did to screw G- ghana up like what what were the foundations of their value sets and their society which if given enough oxygen, could be solutions for how we might all want to live moving forwards. And you know, I was watching, I was watching, um, I was watching uh, something the other day on Sky News, and it was about, um, it was about uh, uh, waiting times for um, ambulances. And there was this old guy who was like ninety years old. He lived in a terrace house, and he'd slipped over, and he'd had to wait four hours for an ambulance. And everyone was complaining about this. And then a, a West African heritage guy, Ghanaian heritage guy came on and he was like, where we come from, that's just impossible because we all know our neighbours and our neighbours all support each other mm. and we live in a broader community. And the idea that somebody would be on the floor shouting for help and that they wouldn't get helped is is totally alien to um, to West African society. And there's obviously many, many more... Um, you know, uh, concepts like we've always worked on this concept of it takes a village to raise a child, Mm. which is one of the fantastic principles. And, you know, uh, uh, as you know, like if, if you were in the supermarket with your kids and your kids were misbehaving and someone else came to tell them off, you wouldn't accept it because it's like your kids. And, Mm. And so it's like, we all do our own individual thing rather than as a collective raising children or raising communities and and there's often this there's often this thing with with African footballers who give so mu- much of their money back, and often you know clubs especially see that as a as a negative because they think you know he's not going to have enough money for himself or whatever, and but actually it's fantastic principle that you know the society that we're coming from the few that are successful are going to lift all the rest and are going to share it. So all those kind of things that you start to look at in Ghana and think you know that's totally different to how we do it, but actually it's probably superior in many ways and you know and what's happened through the media where we've sort of lost um you know the, the, the lens that has been pointed on Africa for so long is is one of negativity mm-hmm. and of poverty and corruption all of those things were were created by by us the the english um means that we've lost um we've lost sight of unbelievably culturally rich solutions which in my opinion the UK and the US could be looking to now to say these might be guiding lights for how we can find stronger societies because our societies are falling down. So when I started to see that and started to realise that you know my my education as a as a, a a white English guy was pretty irrelevant to finding solutions in that environment, and that if I could just raise enough money to kind of put some walls around a campus and inside that campus allow Ghanaian. Values to flourish, and not try to influence it with what I think is hmm. um, is is uh, the way things should be done. That we might find some really amazing results, and and that's what I think that that we've seen. And and what we're so you know what we're so excited about now is going somewhere like Egypt, who you know the most ancient, rich civilization is not going there with this perception that that we've got anything to teach there. Just that to put some structures in place that mean kids don't worry about some of the basics that they currently do. Of how am I going to eat, or how am I going to go to a good school? Provide that stuff, and then allow the richness of that society to th- to, to to thrive, and then we can all go to different campuses and just pick good bits from from all of them. And that's what that's what Right Dream is.
1: So, in that sense, you think it'll be easier the second time i mean people assume not completely incorrectly that money makes it loads easier but in your case you're thinking the experience will make it loads easier this time
0: yeah and 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 removing that removing that you know mindset so in some ways it's kind of it's kind of easy because we just provide like the basics you know like great school like a certainty that there are great pathways for me you can't mm. underestimate that in in african players you know If you're in an academy in England, there's a certainty that if you do really well, there's a first team there for you. But when you're in an academy in Africa and you're thinking like, I don't know where this is going to go. And I don't, you know, I might be on trial in Slovakia or in Sweden or in South Africa. Mm. Um, And so that uncertainty is horrible to kind of try and focus on your development and have that uncertainty. And the same for our student athletes. Like they know that there's scholarships in America every year. And if they make the grade, they're going to get it. And that's how, you know, we grew up in England knowing that if you work hard, there's the next step is, is there for you. So, you know, you provide those basics that are taken for granted, you know, um, in a lot of Western cultures. Um, and then, you know, kind of let the car, you know, obviously, obviously you have a handbrake, but you really kind of let it flow and see like how, what do you guys want to make of this? And, you know, what we're doing in Ghana now and we've just employed a new uh, Ghanaian managing director and we're saying to him, what, what do you want to make of it? What, How do you want to translate your uh, the needs of your country and the culture of your country into this academy? Um, because that kind of, you you know, I, I'm not a believer in that sort of uniformity and and I think football tends to make you think this way that like wouldn't it be great if you had these academies all over the world and they were all doing the same thing each day so that you were really controlling the development to know that everyone's doing the same thing and 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 that for me is like totally the wrong way of thinking about it and it's saying as long as the, as long as the material stuff is provided and the and the security about opportunities in the future you you figure out how, how you'd like to do it um and then we will take little strands of that and plug it into other academies and you can go and take some of those strands and plug them into yours but it's your choice um how you want to do that not dictated by some masterminds sat in a you know glass office somewhere with football boards and you know being geniuses about how to do it all
1: we talk about reversals of traditional roles um i guess that leads us to right to dream buying northeland the club where you're sat now in, in in 2016 how did it come into your head that the academy should buy the club rather than the other way round
0: well um you know that the, first of all that it just sort of appealed to my entrepreneurial spirit to like, you know, do <laughs> something that that just was, uh, you know, was fairly outrageous and hadn't been seen in, in African football before, but you know, we didn't, we didn't in many ways want to do it. Um, you know, what I talked about at the start, which was the idea that all of our kids get the opportunities that they get and then leverage those opportunities to help the kids in the communities that they come from mm. to get similar opportunities. So, you know, we've had, we've had, uh, you know, over 70 kids go to America and attend, you know, many of the best universities in America. And my experience was that if I went over there and spoke to the schools or the universities and said, this is our philosophy, the universities and schools would say, that's great. We will help reinforce that philosophy as we educate this child, um, you know, to make sure that he remains empowered. And then you'd go to a professional football club and I don't want to name names, but, you know, we had kids in a number of clubs. And if you talk to anybody there about that being kind of the why and the purpose around it and and that we'd like help to kind of reinforce that in the kid's mind, they'd kind of look at you like you were mad and, and mm. say, well, you know, that's not our concern. And and that's kind of, a, you know, a damning, but, but in my opinion, accurate reflection of sort of, the, the culture in, you know, so many football clubs, there are a few good ones, but really it's, you know, if if we can win on Saturday and if we can sell them at the end of the season, then, you know, then it's great, but we're not really interested in anything else. And so we got really frustrated with that. And so our idea was, you know, could we, if we bought a club where we could kind of stay true to those values, but also we're really interested in coming into Europe and showing that that kind of teaching isn't something that is just preserved or needed in Africa where the kids in the communities are, um, uh, you know, living in tougher environments. But what if every kid was saying, how can I leverage what I'm getting here um, to be a positive influence on society? Um, Then, you know, we think that that's the bedrock of the bedrock of all the academies that we run. And and we think it should be generally the bedrock of, um, of all football clubs so that guys like Marcus Rashford and Juan Mata aren't kind of, outliers and products of great parenting. Mm. They are the the product of, of f- football clubs saying to the kids who get in, part of the deal of you being in here is that we expect you and we're going to support you to find out what you care about in the world. And whether that's affecting one person's life or like Marcus's tens of thousands of people's lives, we're not going to place any focus on like the scale of what you do being important, but it's your daily actions towards um, leveraging the privilege that you get of being in a football academy or becoming a footballer to make sure that that you figure out how you're going to help other people with that. So that, yeah, that's sort of our thinking on that.
1: So when you did arrive, how did you sell that vision to the community? Because uh, I think, on, there, there, there are two sides to it, aren't there? When you're a football supporter and a, a new group of people or a new person comes and buys your football club, you're either, depending on your, your outlook, you're either thinking they're going to spend a load of money and buy a load of cool new players or um, I'm very suspicious of them. So how did you get yeah. across that you had a completely different mindset and how easy was it to... Get the existing fans of North Zealand to, to buy into that.
0: Um, it was difficult, and you know we we made a lot of mistakes as well um, in that regard. And and uh, I think we we told too much of an international story to, to start with, and we didn't we didn't localize and make the story you right. know really relevant for the for the local community, and you know. This isn't the last football club that we're going to buy. Now that we've done the um, the the deal with our new with our new partners, and so I'm really interested in kind of um, having a second second go at that. But we're but we've improved a lot, and um, we've we've localized and made our message relevant to the local community. So you know, yesterday, just an example like International Women's Day a couple of years ago, um, we played with uh, each of our players um uh picked their female role model and played with her name on the back of their shirts. We played right. against Copenhagen. And it was um it was like Venus Williams, it was um uh, Greta Thunberg, those kind of names mm. on the back. And we just did it again yesterday and um the players picked um local women who are either nurses who've you know worked so hard through the pandemic or, you know, local activists and just and 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 got the message out there, but in a much more local and 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 relevant way, rather than kind of a little bit more sort of in like sort of flashy and you know glossy content, which looks really great. But is it do I really feel it as a fan, or do I feel it's kind of like a marketing exercise yeah. that's being done around around my football club? And so you know we loved all the content and we thought it looked amazing, and some of our big international partners loved it, but but it missed that kind of local importance for our fans. So we learned a lot from that and the feedback that, that, that we got from them. Um, and I think are getting much better because nobody, nobody dislikes the right to dream message. Mm. You know, the idea that everybody has the right to dream is pretty hard to, to disagree with that. Yeah. So, as so long as you deliver it in the, in the right way and make it locally relevant, then, you know, then I think you can get tremendous traction. So that's kind of the journey that we're on. And then, you know the football model. It's the football model itself. We're the youngest team in Europe, and to say we're going to be really young and we're going to play with only kids from our academies—that again for the fans is not something which is easy to easy to trust. And I think everybody's really excited to have um, two two kids from the academies in the first team. Um, you know, in most clubs, but we, we played last Wednesday. Uh, we won away from home and we were the youngest team in the history of Danish football to win a match. Wow. And we used and we used eleven players from our academies in the process. So uh, I think maybe on reflection, we shouldn't we were pretty bold in saying that was what was going to happen. Hmm. And I think we maybe should have just allowed that to happen a little bit more organically because I, I think it is, you know, it causes some concern and it was also quite a stressful model. You know, we sold our best two academy graduates in the summer and this year, have had a little bit of a, a tougher season as a result. So, mm. part of it obviously is an experiment that hasn't been done before, and so for the fans, that's a little bit unnerving as well because there is no blueprint to show that it to show that it works. But you know, in the context of what we've achieved over five years in terms of league positions and and player sales, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't actually really want to call it player sales in terms of graduating our players onto onto to bigger clubs where they're, you know, really living their dream and and we want to be the kind of club where you feel super proud of seeing your lab that you used to support going on and playing for Ajax or Sampdoria or, mm. you know, wherever they go and, and for that to be part of the fan experience of, of supporting FCN, a little bit like if you support a college uh, sports team in America, you know that they're all going to leave at some point, but when they're playing in the NBA or the NFL, you're super proud that, mm. you know, he, he went to my college, or I got to see him playing on a on a pitch in in Farum. You know where normally that kind of level of young players hasn't hasn't been seen before. Well, I think
1: most fans of non elite clubs are, are relatively realistic about that, aren't they? And you know when you have a, a talent like Mohamed Kudus going to, to Ajax, that's something that reflects well on the club and reflects well on the model. But in terms of creating one community, and you talked about maybe being more international initially. How important was it for you to get young Danish scholars out to Ghana to make the two sides of the club one, if you like?
0: Yeah, it was super important. There was a couple of things that we, you know, I've, 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 I've sort of uh, owned up on a few of the things that we got wrong, but a couple of things that we really got right was, one, we said that the academies are never going to play each other. Because you know what what we know, especially I think if you you know if your academies are full of men, is that the the that sort of competitive tension and you know the two age groups play and then you know let's say one wins four nil and then the others are saying oh well they're not good enough and why are we partnered with them or, mm. you know all, all those kind of things start to breed a, a, a bit of a cancer um, in, into your into your culture. So first thing was we're only ever going to play together. So. When there's two teams together from FCN and Write to Dream, we'll mix up five and six, five and six, and play against each other that way. Um, and then we have this international academy where we go out and play against all the best best teams in in Europe in a, in a normal year. Um, but the other sort of big thing that we wanted to say was this wasn't about um, this wasn't about uh, creating opportunities for Africans to come and access something in Europe. This, as you said, you know already, this was about creating mutual learning and exchange, and for our, uh, and that started with saying, okay, our Danish kids will go to Ghana first, mm. and they will go there, and we will frame these trips as learning opportunities to see how something could be done differently and very well, and not slipping into that mindset of mm, this should be done a bit more like we're used to doing it in in, in Denmark, so. You've got to, you know, we've got some great guys in our character team and you've got to work really hard to frame, to point the lens in the right direction and to give kids the opportunities to ask the right questions and think about the right things when they go to an environment which, you know, Western media has already like preconditioned us when we go to Africa to look at things through a negative lens. So you've got to kind of re- reshape that before you um, uh, before you make a trip and then create a really rich experience. Um and, and it's fantastic, you know, you see that the the first year when we told the parents that okay, we're gonna take the twelve year olds to Ghana, there was a lot of skepticism. Mm. But all of them, all of them said that they, you know, their kids had grown up years when they came back from it from a 10 day 10 day trip. So that statement that you kind of yeah, flip it round of the typical African European relationships um and say, right. The, the, the danes go there first and go and learn and develop and then the Ghanaians will come up uh, later on I think is is the symbolism of that is important when you're trying to build a build a culture that is departing from a well enforced narrative of how Africa and Europe relates uh, relate to each other still
1: it is a, a top flight culture and you've got a top flight signing in dr Pippa Grange, who worked as a psychologist for the the England team. What was the thinking behind getting her in and how did you get someone who's worked at the very top level of football to to come and buy into your project?
0: Um, I think because uh, she knew that there needed to be a statement and an example of what culture should look like within football. Um and that, I think that's that we, her
1: title, isn't it? Culture Officer?
0: Head of culture, yeah. Head
1: of culture, right.
0: Yeah. Um and so um, you know, first of all, like when I when I was first introduced to her by by Dave Reddin, um and talked through what we were trying to achieve and, and the experiences that I'd had in in Africa that I expressed to you earlier on about my my uh, my own biases and my unlearnings, um, mm. that I had to go through, then she kind of took it to an entirely different level for me. And, and the first couple of times I met with her for an hour and it was, you know, two of the most exhausting things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> she could, she could unpick it and, and then, um, and then kind of frame it and, and, and explain it to you in a way that, that like was so deep. And, and then it was, then it was like, okay, we need this kind of cultural leadership through, through the organisation to take all of our staff and players on these journeys of um, unlearning and also of, identif- of, of identity exploration and uh, purpose discovery, and so we started sharing ideas about what what could that look like. Um, and she was she was uh, instrumental um, along with uh, our COO who who joined at a similar time, Dave Laurie, um, in. Uh, structuring the deal that we did with the Mansours mm. um and so she she worked with us as a consultant for a year where she was working uh to a certain extent on our current programming but more kind of casting a vision for the Mansours of if we if we had real resource what would a truly purpose driven football club look like um you know and now now we managed to do that deal and She's now um, just constituted our um, uh, people and purpose team and we've got a, a six month design now around um, around the the people development and purpose discovery uh, 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 team that we're going to have in all of our clubs, which is a significant investment and um, and that's going to manifest itself in physical spaces and physical experiences and a huge amount of support and and so yeah the way that she the way that she conceptualizes that and and then designs that and and her vision for what um great culture could look like um we're really hoping can be quite game changing because you know i think sort of the you know the mental health issues that come out in football and the and and the experience of being in an academy for most kids you know, i think the british media the last you know even the last 4 months is starting to ramp up the analysis of like yeah. what what is it actually like to be in an academy um and and we really believe that you know with her and the team that she's built and a lot of talented people that we have already in the organization we can create a pretty significant alternative to what it could look like to be a, a player or an employee in a club
1: and as you say you you are running a club as well and it's generally thought that as well as having young players with different experiences around each other and you do have a young team, you do need that bit of experience to, to to bring them on and to bring outside perspectives. One of the players you've signed relatively recently is a very experienced player at the top level of European football in in Johan Giroud. How did you come to a point where you went and got a player like that and how important was it not just... For you to convince him, but him to convince you that he got it,
0: yeah, that's a great question. And and I'd put, um, we also have, um, you know, one of the top performers in, in the Danish league over many years, uh, Kian Hansen, who was at Midgeland, mm. um, who who came, um, a little bit before Johan. So we've got a couple of a couple of guys we see this, um, this sort of thirst for more, um. In, in footballers but also in society more more generally for there to be more meaning and more reason behind what what are we doing and i you know i, I have an inbox full of um what would have been uh, previously classed as midlife crisis guys who have been doing you know doing something for for 20 years and are now really starting to ask themselves what what's this for and what's it about and i want something more purposeful in in um in my life. And I want my, you know, all this energy that I've got to, to work and do something to have some more meaning on the end of it. And, and so, you know, we see that in football as well. And especially in, especially in players who've been in the game for a long time and, and, and in clubs where it's, you know, really just defined by the three points on a Saturday and there's nothing else, nothing else to it is why not, um, you know, during the course of the week, have, have it being about more things and, 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 and meaning more. And so with Johan, you know, it was really interesting because, you know, he was adopted from, um, uh, from Ivory coast as, as a very, uh, as a very little boy. Um, and so he's got this uh, connection back to, to Africa, which I, you know, I think he, you know, he's explored, but is still in in the process of kind of exploring and his identity and his roots in that regard. And, and then you know, and then we've got some great kids from ivory coast here and and so that that sort of knowledge I guess that you know it could have been very different for me if you know if I hadn't gone to Switzerland and I could have missed the opportunity and here's an organization that's trying to make sure that those opportunities are more are more plentiful so I think that connected with his um you know with his identity and his purpose and and obviously you you're speaking to him as well, so he can he can um you know add much more. To that, but I think it's I think it's players who are looking and saying, "Okay, in the last stage of my career, how could I how could I be involved in something that means something different?" And especially if you've been there and kind of done it all, and and you don't have that sort of itch if you've never really done it to say, "Oh, I still want to try and get there." If you've been there and you've done it, and you know, and, and Kian as well had done so much within within Danish football to say, "Okay, let me try something new." And then and then the obvious other part is that. It's a much better prepar- preparation for a transition um, if you're involved in something um, more purposeful, and you've got a leadership role within that, and you've got a responsibility to bring the young ones on. And so, a lot of what Pippa's building as well now is the transition, the transition section of of our of our people and purpose. And you know, we know that there's a you know a lot of senior players who'd still like to get off to China, and, and uh, although that's sort of rapidly nosediving, but um you know get off and, and and make the um make the last few dollars um but we'd like to be an alternative um where uh, you know the the money is the money is um is let's say low by european football standards but the the richness of the development and the ex- exploration of purpose identity and giving back to to the next generation is really well structured um, and and we think for a lot of players that's that's really appealing. And you know, since Johan came, I've had three other um, uh, very well-known Premier League names with uh, African heritage call and say, "Can I come as well?" And then also, you know, there's so many of the um, current Ghana black stars and some of the Nigeria players who call me and say, "Look." I want my last club to be FCN, and so we're super proud of that. And we also think, as we sort of uh, branch out and maybe have one or two more clubs, that we could have a real platform and, and, and be really well known for being a great place to go as your last club, where um, you really get a lot of support on building a transition afterwards, which may well be like with Michael Essien, a job within our a job within our system. Um, but in exploring, you know, and the purpose part, but, but also, you know, for the, for the players of African heritage or Caribbean heritage, also an environment where um, you can connect and explore your identity further, which is such a big thing, um, uh, you know, that's emerging, emerging now, you know, more forcefully in America and in the UK. And so, you know, to be able to connect back to West Africa, or you know, maybe in the future with a, with a Right to Dream in the in the Caribbean as well, to connect back to your roots and and explore that in a structured, purposeful way, we think is a really compelling offering for players to say, okay, I'd like to finish my finish my career in in, a, in an environment like that.
1: So, finally, Tom, there's clearly a a plan to. Um, spread the message throughout the world um, as you say to get involved in in more clubs throughout the world do you expect there to be more resistance from not just traditional academies but traditional clubs and traditional football ways of thinking as you go on and are you ready for that how do you feel about that
0: yeah um, yeah, we're quite used to resistance Um, but I think You know what? What um? What we see now, if you look at the the data that's available on Gen Zs and on Alphas in terms of what do they expect from the I don't even want to say brands in that regard, but what do they expect from the organisations that they're going to engage with? Um, and you know, it's amazing. I've got I've got three young boys, and I showed them. You know, I showed them uh, the Colin Kaepernick advert that had like my the hairs on the back of my neck standing up and everything when Nike released it, and they were like, "No dad, it's bullshit. They're just trying to sell us trainers, and they're only they're only backing that message because uh, they think it's going to sell more trainers." And it was fascinating the way that they the, that they look into that. And so everybody knows everybody knows that that's the reality of how you know these amazing generations that we've got coming up view the world. And you know the, the utter disdain that they view us with in relation to climate change, for example. You know that that that, that it's going to be very very different, and 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 that these generations are going to expect different things from the organisations they engage with, and that's what we're focused on. Um, and you know anybody who doesn't see that the academy game and the transfer system needs a massive massive overhaul. Um, just doesn't, has never been in and around it or experienced it. Um, and so, you know, the, the resistance that might come from people who want to maintain the status quo is like, couldn't care less. And, um, and uh, um, but, you know, what, what we believe and with, with, especially with the sort of communications investments that we're going to make now to take ourselves um, uh, or, or make our philosophy more visible, um, we think that that can be something like really inspiring and educational for um, kids to kids to learn from. And in in the in the in the um, in the nature of what I talked about at the start, where can we go to Africa and really learn and reframe our perspective? Um, you know, if we could make that um, more digital and more available to more kids, because not everybody can you know get on a right to dream trip from you know from a Danish team to come to Ghana. But if we can be part of of uh, explaining and educating what communities that have been undervalued um, historically actually have to offer the world, and what individuals who've been undervalued have to offer the world, um, you know that could end up being our biggest our biggest contribution is is through the the storytelling and the reframing and, and sort of flipping our, our, our perspective, because everybody knows that we've got to do it, you know. The, there's an there's, there's emergence of this of, of this of this message now, and of this need for uh, us to look at the world differently. And, and, and we're, like we're really excited about being part of that. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Created Network.